a, a small world, and it is indeed a very small world this morning. Just there at uh, the time where we were having refreshments, I met a gentleman, I never caught his name, um, but it turns out he's from the UK. Not only is he from the UK, but he studied in my hometown, which is Aberdeen, under the man who baptised me, and indeed lived in the small suburban town that I grew up in. So it is a very small world. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Derek. For those of you who do know me, my name is still Derek, and it's my, it's my privilege to, to share God's Word with you this morning. Before I begin, I would just like to uh, thank our, our church family here for uh, all of your prayers and indeed for your, your well wishes and support following the arrival of our latest edition, baby Ella. I'm pleased to say that she's thriving, mom is doing well, and uh, I'm still getting my long lies at the weekend. So <laughs> all is good. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah, or Isaiah. I will probably use his names interchangeably because I'm not quite sure which one is right. Um, but if you would turn with me, um, we're going to be looking at chapter 53, but we're going to start just at the very end of chapter 52. I'm not quite sure why the 53 starts where it does, but to me, the logical part to start this chapter is verse 13 of 52. If you don't have a Bible here with you, there's, there's ESVs down the side. Let us read, beginning cha- verse 13, chapter 52. He was wounded for our transgressions. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they will see, and that which they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous, one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we just ask you to be here just now, Lord. We ask you to to just reveal more of yourself from your word. Lord, I pray that uh, what we hear and what we, what we speak about will be all of you and none of me. Lord, I pray that you would just speak into our hearts, that you would minister into our minds, Lord, and that you would penetrate our souls. Lord, let us come to a new understanding of your goodness and of your grace. So be with us this morning, I pray, in your precious Son's name. Amen. As I was uh, preparing for this Sunday and reading and then rereading the the text that I was to speak about, I became nervous as to what I would have to say. While all Scripture is indeed God-breathed, equal in its ability to, to challenge and to encourage and indeed point us to Christ, there are passages that are, at least to my fickle mind, a little bit more obscure. And as someone speaking, it's sometimes nice to get these more obscure passages, as you can come to the message on a Sunday morning and be quietly confident that the message that you're about to preach and those you're about to preach to maybe know a little bit less or have at least interrogated to a lesser extent the text that you're about to try and expound. And therefore, you can rest a little easier perceiving that those who have been there may have felt encouraged or challenged by a part of Scripture that would otherwise be far from their mind. And thus, you feel fulfilled that you may have done your role that morning. And then you get to passages like Isaiah 53, which are so well known, so often mentioned at Christmas time or Easter time, inserted into our worship songs, paraphrased during times of intercession, and you say, Lord, What on earth am I going to say this morning that is going to be in any way helpful, any way different, or in any way fresh? And in my little dilemma this week, I think God humbled my thinking. After all, there is nothing that I can say, do, explain, add, speculate about, even gesticulate about, that is going to make the message of the gospel any clearer than what we read in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Let's read. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He, Jesus, God's own son, was crushed in my place, bearing my sins, thus redeeming my soul and making me at peace with God the Father. Nothing, nothing of me, but all of him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the reason that we gather here, the reason I'm speaking this morning, the reason that I can be confident of my place at the table, the reason that I'm able to rest in his grace. And this is the very reason that we need to study the passage this morning as we need to be reminded of God's grace, reminded of our responsibility to live in it 
and our responsibility to share the news of it. As, uh, as Craig mentioned, I think a, a couple of weeks back, when he was uh, speaking about a conversation with a, a, a recent convert he had, um, they remarked that one of the most wonderful things about the passage in Isaiah 53 is its incredible accuracy in its prophecy and foretelling of events that were to happen 700 years in the future. And now, us equipped with the knowledge of the New Testament and the benefit of hindsight, we can refer to this passage as a messianic prophecy. And amongst the prophecies regarding the Messiah's coming in the Old Testament, this is perhaps one of the most explicit. But despite its explicitness, despite the clear fulfillment of it in the New Testament, there are so many people who just miss it. People who either refuse to see it, people who just don't believe it, or people who just don't care about it. And I often read passages like this, and I'm so blown away by the consistency of Scripture over such a vast period of time. And then equally dumbfounded as I began to think about Jesus' contemporaries and their inaction during his time, especially his fellow Jews. I mean, these were people who knew Isaiah 53, literally word for word. It was in their DNA, it was in their fabric, in the way that they lived, the way they acted, the way they spoke, and it, in Jesus, was unfolding in front of their very eyes. Yet many refused it, doubted it, or just didn't care about it. And while this morning we could look at the fascinating detail of how of all of Isaiah's prophecies were fulfilled in the New Testament, I instead want us to focus on what I believe, believe to be the key theme of this passage, and indeed the key theme of all of God's Word, which is the substitution of Christ in our place to clear our debt of sin. When Brian Smith from Grace Church in Memphis spoke about this theme a few weeks back, you may recall that he used a term that I'm sure was foreign to many of us, which was propitiation. Propitiation is a great word, and if you remember anything about today, I encourage you to remember that term. Because it, in its meaning, it is that Christ appeased God by atoning for our, your, my transgressions. And so to, mo to look at this text this morning, I want to focus on the propitiatory, substitutionary character that is mentioned throughout the whole of Isaiah 53. The lamb that was led to the slaughter, the sheep that was silent before the shearers, the one who poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet who bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressor. And so I have three headings. Firstly, we're going to look at the need for a lamb. Secondly, I want us to look at the nature of the lamb. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, what our response is to the Lamb. Ever since Adam and Eve's fall from grace and indeed their first sin, man has required a Lamb, needed a Lamb, something to act as a substitution for their misdeeds. We see this woven throughout the whole of the New Old Testament. We just have to think back to, to Genesis and the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham's taken him up to the altar. On their journey up the hill, Isaac says to Abraham, Genesis 6 and 22, if you want to look it up, Behold the fire and the wood, 
But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And you can imagine, Isaac, can't you, inquiring gently of his father like any small boy would. We have the wood, father. We have the fire as the means to ignite the wood. But where's the lamb? And somewhat masterfully, Abraham replies, telling Isaac that God will provide the lamb. And indeed, God does provide the lamb, but differently to how Abraham would have thought. Isaac needed something to take his place. And in this account, we get the first glimpses of God's redemptive plan for mankind. In the next book of Exodus, we get to Egypt and the plagues, and again, there is a requirement for substitution. God was to send the angel of death, and the Jews were told to paint their door frames in the blood of the lamb so that the angel of death would pass over their houses. For those who didn't, there was to be death in the household, death to the firstborn of each of the families. And in this grim account, we see death everywhere. Human death in the Egyptian families, and then the death of a substitutionary lamb in the Jewish households. The painting of the door frames in themselves was not what made the angel pass over, but rather it was the symbolism that there had been the death of the lamb in place of the firstborn in the Jewish households. And then we get to the next book in the Old Testament, and Leviticus 16, where it speaks about the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest over the Jewish people would take two male goats and one ram for a burnt offering. The priest brought the animals before the Lord and cast lots between them. One was to be a sacrifice and shed, and the other was to be a scapegoat. The first goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people, and his blood used to cleanse the most holy place, the temple, and the altar. And then the second live goat was brought in before the priest. And laying his hands on the head of the goat, the high priest confessed over it symbolically all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion, all of the hatred and sin of the Israelites for that year. And then the people would drive this goat out of the camp, out into the wilderness, to try and remove their sin from them. And this goat would be out there, burdened down, weighed down by all of the sin, all of the slander, all of the debauchery, and evil that the people had committed that prior year, just so that they could attempt to get on a right footing with God. And we could continue to go through the Old Testament, but it would become rather tedious. But you see the pattern, don't you? Man sins, man is not righteous, man needs something to atone for his sin. But this pattern was unsustainable. Something had to give. Animals, after all, weren't willing sacrifices. They did not want to be slaughtered. They did not want to be driven out. They did not even understand the debt that they were redeeming. And Isaiah sees this. He prophesies this. He understands that one has to come who is willing to bear our griefs, willing to carry our sorrows, willing to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to take our chastisement, and to heal us one who was willing to recognize that we had gone astray and in his love to redeem us by taking on the iniquity of us all. We are a sinful people. We are a people born into sin and it's in our nature. 
And therefore, when our sin is put in front of a holy God, he can't stand it because it is the very antithesis of his nature. And that is our problem. That is our need for a lamb. Our need for someone to clear our debt, to blot out our sin, to cover our transgressions. Now, I'm not a purveyor of of fine art, but there is a painting um, done by the famous uh, Dutch artist Rembrandt, and it's the crucifixion of the Christ. And when you look at this painting, your, your gaze, I guess, is first drawn to the cross and then to Jesus. And then you look at all the faces in the crowd, the people who were involved in committing the awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. But if you study the painting for a while, your eyes begin to drift and you see in almost hiding in the shadows a self-portrait of the painter Rembrandt because Rembrandt recognized that it was also his sins that helped nail Jesus to the tree. And someone aptly said, it is a simple thing to say that Christ died for the sin of the world. It is quite another thing to say that Christ died for my sin. And it may be an interesting pastime to point fingers at those who crucified Jesus, but it is a shocking thought that I can be as indifferent as Pilate, as scheming as Caiaphas, as calloused as the soldiers, as ruthless as the mob, or as cowardly as the disciples. It isn't just what they did, but it was I, Derek, who nailed him to a tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. And if you're to look again at the painting in that context, you begin to see yourself there. Calvary's cross revealing man's hatred for God and God's love for man. And so you're probably thinking just now, Derek, see that reference you made earlier about feeling that you don't have anything new to bring to the table? Well, I can see why you thought it. I mean, that's a nice story about Rembrandt, but... To be honest, I already know the need for a lamb. I know these texts. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need someone to cover my sin and to make me right with God. In fact, I've known that since Sunday school or college or when I first became a convert. As my son Benjamin would say, I'm done already, Dad. I'm done already. I get it. And granted, you're probably right. But let me ask you one question, which is the same question I asked myself this week. If you recognize your need for a lamb, who do you think is going to be the lamb for your unsaved parent, sibling, child, friend, co-worker? Does our realization that we have to seek forgiveness and shelter in the blood of the lamb to make us right with God cause our very being to thirst after sharing this news with others that have yet to hear? Do we actively pursue conversations with these people? Do we muddy our knees from prostrating before God, asking him to reveal himself to these people? Do we actually recognize the need for a lamb for all of mankind? 
D.L. Moody, one of America's best-known evangelists from the 19th century, spent 40 years ministering truth to the masses, and it is believed over the course of his ministry that one million people came to know the Lord as their personal Savior. Moody had a real heart for others to come to know the Lord, and not only did he spend his working time out in the field, but he also spent his quiet time interceding for his unsaved friends. And over the years, he committed 100 friends to prayer, and before he went to be with the Lord, 96, 96 of those 100 people came to know the Lord. And what's more remarkable, or perhaps more profound, the four remaining became Christians at his funeral. And friends, I don't know how many people are on our prayer lists, but if we could each commit to praying for just five to write down their names, to covenant to pray regularly for them, to covet their souls for the Lord. We might find it difficult to share our faith with some of our friends at school, college, work, but it's very easy to pray for them. After all, it's not our good deeds or our intellect that's going to bring anyone to a saving understanding of Christ, but purely the revelation of himself by himself that will convince someone of their need for a lamb. And so if we see our need for a lamb, how does this text describe how we should think about his nature? You will notice that Isaiah gives us a relatively detailed physical description and character description of the servant or the lamb who is to bear man's sin. Beginning at verse 2 of chapter 53, we read, For he grew up like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire in him. It's very clear from this passage of Scripture that the one who was to come and to save Israel was not going to be a handsome warrior king, but rather one born into meek and humble surroundings. And in fact, he was going to be so bland in appearance that there was nothing in him that would resemble majesty or grandeur, and he had nothing in him that would make someone desire him or even take a second look at him. And yet this was the one who was to triumph over death, who would stand in the gap and cancel our curse. And if we look at verse 3, the text goes on further, building up this picture. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This servant, lamb-like figure, was to be familiar with grief. He was to be a man of sorrows. He was to be rejected by men and by women like us, and we would esteem him not. In other words, when we take up everything we know about him, when we took up all his personal appearance and all that we saw, and we looked... When we looked at him, we would esteem him not. We would give him a big, fat zero. And yet his sorrows and his griefs were not even his own. They were and are ours. They're our sins, our heartache, our brokenness. And he takes all those things that we have done, and in verse 5, he does it so that he can give us peace. You might be wondering this morning if this is an appropriate passage as we prepare for summer. 
I know it's always pretty much summer here in uh, sunny Asia, but this morning, did we actually want to come to church and think about sin and brokenness and suffering and death? as we have one eye on our, our summer vacation or school ending or college ending or work ceasing for, for 10 minutes. It'd be much easier on the air, wouldn't it, this morning to speak in pleasant platitudes and speak of his creation and his wonderful plan to make you successful and happy. To paint this servant that Isaiah describes in a cheery, chirpy, sporty, upbeat, leisurely, all you kind of need of love, insert your own adjective type of way. But this notion of a servant, who is of course all of these things because he created all these things, is metaphorically okay in the summer months of your life. But what happens in the winter time of your life? When your marriage is going through winter? When your health has taken a turn for your worse? When your education is not happening as you planned out? or your work is not going well, or your relationships with your friends or loved ones is deteriorating, or even in the final winter time that is death. When everything just seems to be going wrong and you feel like life is beginning to trample you. It's at that time when really you want to be able to proclaim, when all my soul gives way, then Christ is all my help and stay. That's why we need a servant who is acquainted with grief, familiar with suffering, one who understands our troubles and our worries and who intercedes on our behalf. One who is not just going to say, are you all right, chum? Pick up the chin. But one who will actually carry you through the storm. One who gives us his love whilst performing his perfect justice. Now, while Isaiah had not had the fact that Jesus would be the servant who God would send fully revealed to him, he did understand that the nature of this servant lamb was to be one ultimately of love and justice. And quite often we can think about love or when we think about justice, we maybe view them in opposing terms. I mean, how can you give out love and justice? I reflect on my own role as a father and when... I'm saying my children, but it's normally Benjamin. When he, when he disobeys me, the punishment I give out quite often feels justified, but do I carry it out in a loving manner? It's much easier, isn't it, to show someone love rather than correction, or for some to show them correction rather than love. But when we look at the cross of Jesus that Isaiah is ultimately pointing to, we see God's justice and his love working in complementary terms, in perfect harmony. Alistair Bregg, the, the great Scottish preacher that uh, the Americans have stolen, references a friend who puts this rather succinctly. God is one who loves us so much as to have made Calvary possible, but one who hates sin so much to have made Calvary necessary. <coughs> The nature of God is to punish sin, yet in his infinite mercy, he extended his grace to us through his Son. We read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, 
out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Our servant was a willing servant, a willing sacrifice, one who loved us so much that he would follow his father's command to be crucified on a cross. One who was willing to be rejected as a man and then have God, the very father, turn his face away from him as he was crushed on the cross. And through all of Jesus' experience or the servant that Isaiah describes leading up to the cross, what's the picture that we get? Look at verse 7. He was oppressed. He was continually made to feel miserable, to be pushed out to the side. The word for oppression here is the same word that uh, they used to describe Egyptians and their task mastery over their slaves. He was afflicted, battered, derided with insults and hatred. He was traded over for a murderer. He was humiliated with the casting of lots for his clothes and the signage above his cross. Then says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. It's one thing to be oppressed and afflicted knowing that freedom's on the other side. It's a totally different thing to do that in the full knowledge that that was about to end with a horrific death. It's harrowing. He was sheared. He was made naked. He was literally stripped of everything, physically and metaphorically. His friends, his family, his clothes, his divine protection. He was laid completely bare on that cross with no protection. And yet, what does Isaiah tell us his response was to be? It was to be one of silence. Three times in that same verse 7, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The nature of servant lamb of Jesus dictated that his response was to be one of silence, patience, accepting, and willing to sacrifice, not for his own sake, but for ours. Stephen Fry, the controversial British comedian, when asked what he would say if he met God in a relatively recent TV interview, responded like this. I'd say, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's just not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice, so full of pain, bone cancer in children? What's that about? Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, a total maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our lives on our knees thanking him what kind of God would do that? Do you think Stephen Fry has ever read Isaiah? Do you think he understands the need for a lamb because of his sin? Do you think he understands that the nature of God is not one who is capricious, but is one who is willing to suffer and to die so that he could deliver divine love and justice and thus free the likes of Stephen Fry, you and me, 
from the binds that project us otherwise to hell. And I'm sure many people like Stephen Fry would inform us that the Bible is the story of man's journey trying to find God, or at least the mechanism for man trying to make himself right with God. But if you were to describe the Bible in that fashion, you'd be describing it in completely the wrong terms. In fact, what we see when we read God's Word is that it is actually a record of God's pursuit for man and the explanation of what God has done to put man in a right standing with him. For there is nothing in us. There is nothing that we can do by works or good deeds that make us good enough for God because our sin has distanced ourselves so far from him. And that's why we need him to seek us, to reveal himself to us, to convict us of our sin, and to offer us Jesus as the propitiatory, redeeming factor in our conundrum. And so, what is our response to the Lamb this morning? Firstly, if you're not a believer here this morning, or if you find yourself with your your foot in more than one camp, which is where I found myself for a lot of my life, let me make a very direct and sincere plea to you this morning. There is only one saving truth in this world. And of course, I firmly believe that that saving truth is in the death and triumphant resurrection of the servant described in this chapter. Jesus wasn't just a good man. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis paraphrases a little-known Scottish preacher, the best preachers are Scottish, with this quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the same level as a man who describes himself as a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us, and he didn't intend to. Jesus either is the truth or isn't the truth. You can't meander in the nowhere category. Believing he's a good man will not save you. You need to make a decision. And furthermore, that decision that you have to make is yours to make. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's us collectively. That's all of us. We have all fallen short and sinned. But look at the second part of that verse. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's you as an individual. You cannot hide in the flock You've turned your own way, this text says, and it's up to you to accept him as an individual or not. 
Secondly, if you have recognized your need for a lamb, if you have come to an intimate knowledge of the nature of the lamb, then how is that shaping your life? What is different about our life as a result of living in the knowledge that we have someone who was crushed for our iniquity? What's the difference in your life as a result of living as a Christian? Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? The text says, who considered it? Considered what? Considered that the servant, the lamb, that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, dead, killed, crucified for our transgressions. And this text is just as relevant today. Do we who are here assembled consider it? Do we muse on it? Do we meditate on it? Do we remember him and his sacrifice when we wake up each morning? Do we remember that he died for our sins and not his own? Does it inform how we act, how we think, how we do? Do we bear grudges? Do we harbor ill feeling? Do we love our adversaries? Do we do justice? Do we act uprightly? Do we do humility? Do we show hospitality? Do we give to the poor? Do we honor our families and our spouses? Do we serve this church? Do we pray that others would recognize their need for a lamb? Isaiah is asking you, do you consider it this morning? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Word that uh, challenges us and convicts us. But Lord, we thank you that at the end of this word, we know that there is a Savior. Lord, we thank you that Isaiah's prophecy was to end with Jesus and the cross and that coming to him and repenting of our sins, in doing that, Lord, we have the ability to enjoy eternal life with you. And Lord, we thank you that you sent your own son to die on that cross, a horrible death, to be punished for our sin, to bear all of our iniquity, all of our shame, all of our sin. Lord, just so that we would have the opportunity to be welcomed into your kingdom. Lord, what mercy, what grace. Thank you. Amen.